So, Jay, I guess Marvel's gonna break the world again, huh? You mean Age of X-Men? Sure looks like it, Miles. Makes you think. Takes you back. I can almost taste the Age of Apocalypse. <sighs> that reminds me, what was the deal with the human heroes in that timeline? I mean, it can't just have been on the X-Men to stop the rise of Apocalypse, right? Most of the human heroes never really got the chance to be superheroes, at least not in the ways they were in the 616. The Fantastic Four, for instance, never got powers, although Sue and Ben did end up on the Human High Council along with a lot of other non-mutant heroes. Yeah? Who else? Uh, let's see, there were a bunch. Tony Stark, Clint Barton, Mariko Yoshida, Brian Braddock. So, kinda sorta like the Avengers. If the Avengers were led by Victor Von Doom. WHAT?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 230 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to you and to us. We took a week off, and it was very nice, and here we are again. I feel like... After how we ended last year, I should qualify going in that this episode will not include any original music. Uh, no, no, no. We've done that a couple times recently, and I'm sure we will again in the future, but, um, that's not going to be a regular, regular thing. Yeah, this is, this is not, in fact, how we live now. Instead of delightful, custom J-written music performed by very talented people, we're going to tell you about things that are going to make you sad. It's time for Ilya and Rasputin to die. Again. So I remember, I think we talked about this uh, in the Witcher special, how The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix was a story that even when we started the podcast, we were already looking forward to covering. And this was as well, but in a very different way. I think in a much more similar way to the other very sad issue we covered, which was the death of Doug Ramsey, or more accurately, when Warlock tried to resurrect Doug Ramsey and remind him how to be alive. You can listen to our discussion of that comic in the episode titled... Saddest story ever. Yeah, but it is indeed time for for this one, for Uncanny X-Men number 303. Now, last time with the Doug Ramsey episode, we tried to balance it out with an X-Men's children book. And although there is another X-Men Tattoo Tales book, and one of our listeners was kind enough to send it to us, it's mainly just a retelling of that time the X-Men got brainwashed by Mesmero and turned into a circus, so it wouldn't balance it quite as well. So instead of just going for a contrast, and you know, we looked around and we, we considered a number of options, and we decided to, instead of going for a tonal contrast, to look at something that would be a good sort of narrative balance. And we're actually going to be looking at a much, much more recent issue, one that came out in 2018, which is the What If Magic one-shot. But we'll get to that after you know the first two that we're going to be looking at, which are the, the bulk of the main story we're covering today. Now, we do have some background leading us up to this grand Rasputin tragedy, so I'll start us off with a... Previously on X-Men. Being a Rasputin sucks. Ilyana Rasputin, the younger sister of Colossus, was pulled into a hell dimension called Limbo when she was a little girl. There, she grew into a traumatized but powerful teenager and came out the moment she left, suddenly many years older. Uh, we should say that because she emerged from Limbo in what was still the 1980s and Comics Code Authority supervised Marvel, she in fact emerged. She did not come out. Uh, well, okay, valid point. Back in the main timeline, and now teenage Deliana joined the New Mutants, struggled with her dark side, and eventually sacrificed herself to end a demonic invasion of Earth, reverting to the innocent child she'd been before falling into Limbo, and in the process losing all of her memories and all of the experience she'd had as an adolescent. Meanwhile, Colossus lost his long-lost brother, Mikhail, to a very complicated interdimensional suicide, and then lost his parents shortly thereafter to governmental murder. Just as Ilyana came down with a mysterious illness that's looking more and more like it might be the mutant-targeting legacy virus that Strife unleashed as he apparently died. The X-Men's gold team flew off to go get Forge, who they were hoping might have more luck with the medical technology the X-Men got from their alien allies, the Shi'ar. But they were delayed by future criminal Trevor Fitzroy, who showed up just to be an asshole. 
Meanwhile, Professor Xavier and geneticist Moira McTaggart are working around the clock to try to keep Ilyana stable and figure out just what's up with this whole legacy virus thing. Cyclops, for his part, is still in Alaska after running off there to avoid an awkward conversation where he learned that the legacy virus was in fact from Strife, along with a few other prize revelations from a weirdly helpful Mr. Sinister. And most of the rest of the X-Men's blue team is finishing up a very confusing adventure in Japan along with new additional Psylocke, Revanche. Which Psylocke is the actual Psylocke remains in question. We'll get to that later. For now, we have other stuff to talk about, and that brings us to Uncanny X-Men number 303, Going Through the Motions. And oh boy, this one. So this one has an interesting creative team. We have Scott Lobdell writing. Scott Lobdell, who we've already seen write a number of very good X-Men quiet issues, which this kind of is. But this issue is penciled by Richard Bennett and inked by Dan Green and Richard Bennett, and... um. The line art is absolutely god-awful. Well, for me, it's not that the line art is god-awful, it's just that it's a strange choice for this story. Richard Bennett has very superhero-y, very sexy, very polished, very overly emotive art. And I think in another issue, that could work pretty well. And here, it does not ruin the issue for me. This is an issue that I love very much, and every time that I've read it as I've been preparing for this episode, it's gotten me to tear up, if not outright cry. It's still a very effective issue, but I'll agree that Bennett's art maybe makes it a little less than it might be. Yeah, it's... I'm, I'm trying to think of how best to describe it to folks who are just hearing about it without physical examples, which, of course, you can click through and find in the Visual Companion, but if you're just listening for now, it's maybe Kyle Baker without a sense of humor. <laughs> you know, that's not a bad way of putting it. That's that's a, that's a mean way to say it, but it's it's got that that pin-up-y cartooniness and, and, and sort of exaggerated emotions, but it, it looks like it's just being done entirely straight-faced, and the senses of proportion and you know, consistent character appearance are way off. I, I, I have trouble telling here, with telling with Bennett what's, what's style and what's error, which is always kind of a frustrating situation for me, and I just, it's, as, as Miles said, it's just a terrible tonal fit for this story. But the story itself is goddamn powerful, and I vote we talk about that. Okay. Our story opens with Jean Grey going to find Jubilee, who's hiding out in Xavier's ready room. You know, the one where we always talk about him watching a bunch of porn. We're not going to talk about uh, Xavier's porn habits in, in this episode. We have other stuff to talk about. Well, and and Jubilee is is fairly young, and Professor Xavier, while he is horribly irresponsible, might I'm just I'm just going to go ahead and assume that he has parental controls built in there and she's just been watching the music television or something. Oh, you know what it could be? It could be like those old Leisure Suit Larry computer games where there would be a bunch of trivia questions from the 70s that you had to answer correctly to actually get into the game. Those questions legitimately kept me out of that game. My parents had it and I couldn't play it because I didn't know about, you know, the fucking Eagles or whatever. So um, I'm, I'm going to go on a brief tangent here. I, from that that tangent, and say that that there was there was actually a conversation among amongst several um, older generations of of relatives at Christmas dinner this year about which of them had owned leisure suits and in what colors, and I was very impressed. Oh, that's amazing! Uh, but we're uh, we're getting a little off track. Let's talk about tragic things other than leisure suits, which are fucking amazing, not tragic. So. Jean's come to find Jubilee to see if Jubilee's okay after everything that happened, and we haven't explicitly been told what happened yet. This issue opens after this big event, but we can definitely assume, based on what we've known is coming for the last four months of issues ever since Liana started to get sick, Jubilee is resistant to Jean's warmth, though. If you're waiting for me to wilt and start blubbering, forget it. I don't do that crying thing. But if you want to know what I'm thinking, I can sum it up in two words. Life stinks. For me, this is the issue that makes, I think, Scott Lobdell my definitive Jubilee writer. Jubilee was created by Claremont. I gotta say, I like Lobdell's better. There's just so much heart and emotion and bitterness and so many layers of barriers and occasional vulnerability that Lobdell's able to get through. And this, I think, is my favorite issue for exactly that. It's also one of my favorite Jean Grey issues, honestly. Okay. So, and, and Jean does spend a lot of it talking to Jubilee, and this is something we see a few times over the years. I, I, there's, there's, there's another bit, I think, in, in or around Scott and Jean's wedding where the two of them intersect, and it's pretty great. Jean 
stays and talks to Jubilee. And it's it's there that we are through through that conversation that we start to see what Jubilee is actually upset about. Jubilee leads us into a flashback, and we're going to have a lot of Jubilee narration here. That's something that it, this issue contains a great deal of, and I think it's quite effective. It's not like we didn't see it coming a mile away, but it's different when it actually happens. No matter what you do to psych yourself up, no matter how much you say to yourself, I can handle this, you really can't. It's like making all your stomach muscles tight because you're expecting a punch to the gut. Then at the last second, life decides to kick you in the teeth instead. And we learn about what happened. And I really appreciate that the death of Ilyana Rasputin, because of course that's what this issue is about, is told largely in flashback form because this is an issue about inevitability. It's an issue about having a situation that you just can't do anything about and having the events have already happened when we, the readers are coming in hammers that home beautifully. There's no, there's no false hope that maybe it'll be okay. There's just processing. That's what this issue is about processing back in the recent past. Professor Xavier and Moira are working their asses off, trying to keep Ilyana okay as they wait for the gold team to return with forge and Jubilee is on Ilyana's big fancy Shi'ar medical tech bed, holding up a Bamf doll, like a little Nightcrawler doll, and making it talk in the very few German words that she knows. Jubilee's doing her best. She's a good kid, mostly. It's, it's, it's a scene that reminds me, although in a much, much more innocent context of uh, Fish Called Wanda. I don't remember the scene to which you're referring. Okay, so Jamie Lee Curtis's character has a thing for men talking in other languages. And she's with Kevin Klein's character, who clearly doesn't actually speak Italian, but just recites the names of pasta dishes to her. Kevin Klein can sell pretty much anything in the movies that he's in. Yeah, no, I sort of think I, I want to do a Kevin Klein movie marathon at some point where we just hit all of the really, really disparate points. So A Fish Called Wanda and Dave and Sophie's Choice and The Pirates of Penzance are sort of my, my lineup in this. That, I don't think I'd have any emotions left after that marathon. It would use them all up. Right? I assume you'd need to start with Sophie's Choice because you'd, it would literally take the entirety of the other three movies to come down from it. Well, uh, speaking of sad things and how we come down from them, this story. So it's interesting that in the flashbacks, Jubilee's wearing one of the X-Men trainee uniforms, like, you know, the blue and yellow thing that was sort of the, uh, that the New Mutants wore a variant of, that the original X-Men wore a variant of. Did she ever officially wear one of those? She did briefly in the era where the X-Men were going into space and they met up with Professor Xavier, who was disguised as that weird overlord. So this isn't new, but it interests me that in the past, when Jubilee is trying to take care of Liana, she's wearing an X-Men training uniform, which makes her come off as kind of young because they've mostly been associated with the younger members of the X-Men. But in the present, she's wearing her own yellow coat and pink shirt and blue shorts, like very much her own look that sort of separates her from the team. That almost seems like a, a visual way of her pulling away, of her kind of putting up walls as opposed to being part of the cohesive unit that is the X-Men. Maybe I'm reading too much into that, but well, that's what we do in this podcast sometimes. So as Jubilee is doing her best to cheer her sick young friend up, Ilyana smiles real big because... Kitty Pride is here. Remember, she showed up at the end of an issue we recently covered. And Jubilee is kind of shitty and resentful, talking about how Kitty hadn't been an X-Man in ages, but now she's acting like she never even left. But it's clear that what Jubilee really resents here is the bonds that Kitty and Ilyana have. Jubilee is kind of a newcomer. She doesn't speak Ilyana's language, whereas Kitty does speak Russian. Although it occurs to me, Xavier could have telepathically taught Jubilee Russian the same way that he telepathically taught Kitty Russian. I'm not sure why he didn't. That That's weird to me because he didn't just teach Kitty. He taught all of the X-Men Russian when Kid Ilyana originally came to the mansion. Um, you know, long before any of the magic stuff went down, and he just didn't bother this time. That's a little strange, yeah, strange oversight. But it's interesting, um, Jubilee not liking Kitty here. There's the resentment about Ilyana, but there also seems to be a resentment about the fact that Jubilee is in the role that Kitty used to occupy. It kind of reminds me of when Jubilee really resented Boom Boom. It seems like whenever there's somebody who's at all similar to her, she pushes back hard because she's worried about being replaced. And we see a twist on this. We actually see this addressed really directly years and years later um, in Marjorie Liu's X-23 series in one of the best issues, I think, of, of the entire run. Oh, yeah. I remember the scene you're talking about. That's a good one. 
Now, in the present day, as Jubilee is, you know, recounting this flashback to Jean, she asks Jean, what the hell? I mean, Kitty's like super old, you know, 16 or 17 or whatever. Uh, why is she so close to this little girl? And Jean explains some of the history they had that Kitty, you know, looked out for Ileana when she was little at first, but then that they were best, best, best friends after Ileana was aged up, and that even when she was aged back down, Kitty very deliberately stayed in touch with Ileana, even though Ileana didn't really remember her or their friendship at all. And I love Jubilee's understated reaction here as we see small words in a larger speech bubble, simply. Huh. Cool. As Jubilee just starts to respect Kitty a little bit. But it's interesting here. Um, Jay, I remember you mentioning when Kitty showed up at the end of a recent X-Men issue that she looked really old. And I think here she looks visibly much older than Jubilee. It's not just that she's being drawn as much older. It's that she's being drawn in a really hypersexualized way. Yeah, and I mean, maybe that just goes with her being drawn as older. I mean, this is 90s superhero comics after all. But actually, one of our... One of our listeners, Vord99, had an interesting theory in the comments on our blog um, talking about how since this issue is through the lens of Jubilee's perception, maybe she does see Kitty as like being extra adult as compared to herself. Maybe that's part of where the resentment comes through. Maybe it's sort of an unreliable narrator sort of thing, even if Richard Bennett wasn't necessarily the best artist to put on that job. I like that idea, and I, I think that would be cool if it were the case. So that's, yeah, I think that I think that's a, a neat read on it, definitely. Yeah. Now, it's interesting here because, like you mentioned, Jay, Jean is telling Jubilee about Ilyana's history, and it's this vastly oversimplified version. Like, it doesn't even mention the Dark Child. It's just this super simplified PowerPoint presentation, because otherwise it would take up the entire issue. Well, what I figured is that Jean is basically telling Jubilee the relevant bits, the parts that relate to why Kitty and Ilyana's relationship is what it is now. That would make sense. And maybe it would be too weird to be like, hey, this little girl that you're getting close to that's dying, yeah, she was a demon sorceress who got horribly abused and then almost ended the world. Maybe it's best just to gloss over that part. Yeah, also, you know, there's a lot of subtext that is is just, I think, best not looked at in this in this particular context, too. Yeah, that too. Yeah. So back in the past, um, Jubilee went off to find Professor Xavier, hoping for some kind of encouragement or comfort. Remember, after Executioner's song, the two of them kind of bonded, even if Jubilee is still a little cautious and tentative about the whole thing. But Professor Xavier doesn't say anything. He just has this look of anguish on his face, and I love Jubilee's take. He wasn't being rude or nothing, I could tell. He just didn't say anything. It was like he couldn't bring himself to choke out the words. It's one thing if an X-Man buys it in the slugfest du jour, but she's just a kid. Snow White. Like, she was just being punished for being a mutant, and he's the father of all mutants. And I love that take, because, yeah, that's, that's what Xavier is to Jubilee. Like, she's seen him as a father figure and briefly as a peer, but really he's just this almost legendary archetype to her. And when he can't bring himself to say, hey, it's going to be okay, she's just kind of left on her own. And so she just announces that, okay, since nobody needs her, she's just going to go to bed. She's being very 13 years old about the whole thing. She's going to borrow Strife's burn book. Oh, God. But Kitty says, hey, um, Ileana says she wants you to stay, Jubilee, and um, maybe we could all hang out for a while. And... Specifically, Kitty offers to translate between them. So it's really the first time that Jubilee's actually been able to have much in the way of conversations with Ilyana. And Ilyana thanks her um, for for helping helping the Banff doll talk. And oh God, my heart, my heart. That's the thing. Like Ilyana Rasputin. This is not the Ileana Rasputin that we have mostly known. The one we have mostly known was the one in New Mutants, who was all tortured and torn and kind of wicked and snarky. And this is just almost a generic, innocent little girl. But God, I have so much compassion for her. She's just so, I don't know, pure. Well, this is the Ileana that Kitty made up her fairy tale for. God, you're right. I, I'd almost forgotten about that. But yeah, this is just almost the, the, the quintessential archetypal, small, innocent child. And 
fuck. So it's actually really nice. Like they stay up late talking and laughing and even giggling. Although Jubilee tells Jean that if Jean ever mentions that Jubilee giggled, Jubilee will totally <sighs> deny it. And it just makes me really happy that they're all getting this experience because they've all been through so much shit. But because it's X-Men and there's a limit to the nice things you can have and to their you know subsequent cost, Ilyana's lungs suddenly stop working. And this is some layout work that I really appreciate on, I assume, uh, Bennett's part, because we go from this clean, almost empty framing of all of the scenes. Like, everything is in open, very technological, very streamlined rooms with a lot of white space, and all of a sudden it's just chaos. And there are Dragon Ball Z-esque action lines in the background that actually work pretty well, despite me having just described it that way. (laughs) And, like, Xavier and Moira rush in with a bunch of equipment, and it's just panic. But amidst the panic, Jubilee is just watching her new friend's Kitty as Kitty watches Ilyana. That look in her eyes was like somebody watching themselves die. And eventually, the grown-ups in the room, I guess, Xavier and Moira, figure out a plan. Xavier brings in this big, super alien Shi'ar-looking helmet thing called a Molecular Cohesion Unit and puts it on Ilyana. Apparently what this is going to do is it's going to freeze her genetic degeneration in place. It's going to prevent her from actually going over the edge into death and just sort of keep her in cold sleep. And weirdly, this is where the issue almost turns into a a right-to-die argument, which I wasn't really expecting the first time I read it. And I still don't know whether it works, but it certainly does add drama and conflicts and pathos to the whole thing yeah i don't know if right to die is quite the phrase that you're looking for here but the the question of of at what point sustaining someone's life isn't worth the cost of it because it's clear that if they use this Ilyana will be essentially brain dead she will cease to exist as a person she'll just be sort of like she'll she'll be alive in name only yeah and this is where the fact that we're reading a superhero comic gets weird because In a superhero comic, you can have tech that does basically whatever, and that's certainly the case in X-Men. Sheer technology is pretty much space magic. And so the narrative tells us that, yeah, Ilyana's going to be brain dead, but at the same time, I've just been trained as a superhero reader to always have hope, to always figure, okay, well, you know, maybe next issue or maybe in five years there will be something that will fix this. And so it's a strange discordant feeling seeing Xavier and Moira and even Kitty look at this as something that is so final i feel like there's probably some kind of joke to be made here about mutants and the mcu but it's just not coming together for me so listeners please take that as read it would have been hilarious (laughs) it would have been hilarious god that would be a terrible title for this episode anyway As everyone's arguing, as the grown-ups essentially are arguing, because that's how this issue is very much structured, as the grown-ups and the kids, and Kitty just, you know, is sometimes on one side and sometimes on the other. Right now, she's a grown-up having this argument with Xavier and Moira. Jubilee doesn't really know what to do and just sort of checks out of the conversation and then looks over at Ilyana and knows at least something she can do. About then, I just kind of phased out. Death and dying was never a big dinner topic in Southern Cal. While the three of them talked it out amongst themselves, I I did something kind of, I guess they were just strange. And Jubilee picks up the Banff doll, which has fallen on the floor in all of the chaos. Here they are, debating over whether they should help her live or, or not, and the only thing I can think of is helping her with her stupid old doll. As Jubilee wraps Ilyana's unconscious arms around the doll... I mean, if I couldn't do anything to make her better, I guess it was willing to settle for making her happy. Like I said, strange for me. And this is where I fucking lose it every time I read this comic. It's just this small, kind, ultimately pointless but heartfelt gesture from this character who's kind of portrayed herself as the ultimate cynic who's seen so much pain that she's just distanced herself from any at least overt connection and all she can think of is to make a girl who's at this point maybe brain dead symbolically happy all she can do 
is to create this subjectively meaningful human connection. And death is a topic I struggle with a lot. I um, One of the downsides of being an atheist, I guess. But Is it? Because I land on exactly the opposite end of that divide, but okay. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's a very individual thing, but for me, I don't know, just seeing seeing people engage with death in such a human and present way, it's really emotionally affecting for me, and, and that's very much the case right here. I mean, I think something that Jubilee effectively nails is that we live in a, sci- in a society where death is effectively a substantial te- taboo. I mean, it is perfectly possible to go your entire life in America and to live a fairly long time without ever coming into contact with a dead body, for instance. It's not something, it's something that's very, very removed from most of our day-to-day lives and is, for a lot of us, a really, really alien experience and to some extent concept. It's something that is much, much more a metaphysical question than a practical one, because again, it's not something that for the most part, for most of us, intersects practically with what we think of as, as life and how we experience it. And that's that's weird, but it also it also, you know, contextualizes what Jubilee is navigating here. And also, you know, for the X-Men who have seen a lot of death and who have encountered a lot of death. It frames this as a very, very different situation. In a lot of ways, this is a much, much more mundane death than they're used to navigating, than they're used to facing. It goes back to that quote you read from Jubilee earlier on. It's one thing if an X-Men dies in battle, in combat, but when something like this happens, it's another matter entirely. And Jubilee wanders off for a while to get some drinks for everyone. And when she comes back, Xavier and Moira are still debating over what to do, but Kitty has fallen asleep with the helmeted, comatose Ilyana. And Jubilee once again offers what she can offer, which is a gesture. She picks up a nearby book, The Little Match Girl by Hans Christian Andersen, and reads it to two people who can't hear her, and one of whom, even if she could hear her, couldn't have spoken the language. This is what Jubilee knows how to do. This is how she knows how to reach out. And that's the end of the flashback, as she says to Jean. I guess you know what happened then. What happened then, or at least a little bit later, was that the gold team got back. They defeated Fitzroy, they'd retrieved Forge, and Colossus is immediately furious that everybody's there at the hangar to meet them instead of watching over Ilyana. And Xavier indirectly but clearly tells Colossus what's up. And Colossus, for his part, just walks away. He doesn't react. He's just stone-faced. Or, okay, organic steel-faced, technically. And he doesn't say anything to anyone. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't get sad. He just walks away. Colossus, at this point, is... He's just been crushed. He's just been broken by all of the tragedy that he's been hit with in the past months. Dude, he has lost his entire immediate family over the span of about six months. It's it's horrible. And I mean, I know it's all leading us to a plot point that requires these events to have occurred, but goddamn, fictional character or no, I feel terrible for anybody with the last name Rasputin and anybody who comes into contact with them in X-Men. Well, except for, like, the original Rasputin, who technically is an X-Men character. He was kind of a jerk. Yeah, this is this is this is a product of the someone didn't realize that Rasputin's actually a pretty common surname. Yeah, um, but we digress. The point is, yeah, while the gold team was on their way back, I guess Xavier and Moira did finish their debate, and they did pull the plug, and Ilyana Rasputin did die. It seems incredibly shitty that they didn't wait for Colossus or even give him final say on that. Yeah, that part always always bothered me, and I don't fully understand why that was the case. Again, it's narratively very effective, but on an emotional level, I mean, you would think that they would owe that to him. If Ilyana was going to be in stasis indefinitely, what would be the harm in waiting another hour, another three hours? Although, honestly, I don't know that it would have really helped that much. I think once Colossus knew that Ilyana was going to die, whether or not she was still breathing was maybe not as relevant. And Jubilee at this point does actually finally break down and cry. And Jean 
you know, shares a bit of, of hard-earned X-Men wisdom from, from the member of the team who's probably seen the most of death from, you know, both sides. Come here, Jubilee. We come into this world alone, and we leave the same way. The time we spend in between, time spent alive, sharing, learning, together, is all that makes life worth living. And that's the end of the issue, but it's not exactly the end of the story because, and this is my favorite, favorite thing about this issue. This is, this is so wildly inappropriate. Um, this issue, in addition to being sold, you know, via standard avenues, was actually packaged with some copies of the X-Men Alert Adventures board game. Yeah, or other copies you could mail in a little thing to get a copy. So if your first exposure to the X-Men was that board game and you were like, hey, I want to read about them, you got a kick to the emotional teeth. I mean, it's a great issue, don't get me wrong, but what a place to start. Did you, though? Because I feel like getting getting this issue out of nowhere, it would probably lose some of the emotional resonance that it had for us and, and for, for you know, long-time readers. Well, honestly, not necessarily, because... As this issue was coming out, I was still working my way through my father's long box. I knew a little bit about Ilyana's history, but really, this was my first concentrated exposure to the character. Ouch. And Jubilee, I mainly knew from the cartoon at this point, so I was kind of coming in without a ton of context. And as a kid, it still wrecked me. It still really made me think a lot about death and connection and seeing people from different angles and getting past your own prejudices and resentments. Like... I think the issue stands alone pretty damn well. And goddamn, Eliana's story, of course, is not over. She's going to come back in a couple different ways, and it'll be really confusing and weird, but this era of it very much is. Man, now I'm imagining an X-Men board game that's specifically about, like, navigating death and bereavement. Oh, God. Okay, so that reminds me. Um, I'm going to Disneyland with a couple of friends uh, in the not-too-distant future. I love we that talking... train of thought, just just for the record. Like, that, that makes perfect sense to me. It's totally relevant because, you know, they're doing that sort of Star Wars LARP hotel thing where you, like, are a Star Wars character what? and all the different people who work there interact with you as such. What? Oh, it's going to be great. I'm sure it's, like, way more expensive than either of us could ever afford. But we were talking about, well, what if they did an X-Men one of that? What if it was, like, Days of Future Past and you were trying to break out of, like, a, a Sentinel-run concentration camp and all your friends were dying left and right? And then we pretty quickly realized that maybe X-Men was not the best choice for a, a kid's theme park. Well, also, I think Universal still has the theme park license. Eh, well, Disney will own it all eventually. Disney will own us eventually. I mean, us as individuals. Anyway, all of that said, we were just going to cover this issue and then the what-if issue that, Jay, you mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. but there is an issue of Adjectiveless X-Men, number 24, digging deeper between hope and sorrow, that actually serves as a pretty nice denouement to the whole thing, and really to this era. Yeah, and this is this is one of those issues one of those quiet issues that I love so much, those those lulls after major events. And in this case, the major event, of course, being Ilyana's death. This is written by Fabian Nesesa, penciled by Andy Kubert, inked by Bill Sienkiewicz, and colored by Paul Becton. And the art on this I, is gorgeous. This is honestly, I think, part of why I judge 303 so hard, um, is that, that, that if you look at the two of them together, this is just such, such a good art team. It's interesting, though. The inkers are just credited as and company, even though Bill Sienkiewicz's fingerprints are clearly all over at least yeah, many of the pages. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's that's something that you see periodically is is, is inconsistent credits like that. And it, as usual in such issues, basically what we've got are, are characters paired off in different com combinations, processing or or reacting or, or doing whatever they're doing. Um, at the mansion... In the most direct aftermath, the uh, beast Tank McCoy is helping Professor X with with the autopsy with with and with research. And Beast, we learn, was initially really frustrated and angry that Professor X didn't call him into consult along with Moira, which honestly I was kind of confused by too. But he acknowledges in retrospect that he couldn't really have helped that this is way, way over any of their heads. We'll learn eventually that that's because it is the result of centuries of future engineering. Um but what Beast is able to figure out is that the legacy virus is probably highly contagious. One interesting thing for me in this scene is that Beast is talking about, as he talks about feeling useless, mm -hmm. how, you know, he's very much feeling himself age, why he's about to turn 30. And as somebody who is closer to 40 than 30 at this point, looking at a character like Beast, who's just so intelligent and authoritative and adult, and seeing him as, like, so many years younger than us is a weird freaking feeling. 
you know how some some characters just sort of exist at static ages and don't really age in your head and some people look too young and some people look too old like beast is perpetually in his early late 30s early 40s for me and a lot of that is the way he's drawn some of that is the way he's portrayed in voice some of that is his personality and the way he exists around things so yeah putting putting a number really putting specific age numbers on on any non-kid x-men is always kind of jarring but in this case specifically and very much so because he's not really a character who i remember was ever in his 20s yeah i mean maybe back in the silver age when they were all much younger well, they were teenagers that, back in the silver age right exactly and then they just sort of jumped to being five years older than however old we are yeah yeah exactly so they're about 41 42 now that seems about right and speaking of scientists there's a knock at the X-Mansion door, and Moira McTaggart goes to answer it. And it's Banshee, Sean Cassidy. Um, he's just back from the Canary Islands, and he'd, he'd gone off to find her when she'd left Muir Island about 20 issues ago. Um, and when it became clear that she was okay on her own, he just went on vacation. I kind of like that. Like, I'm sure he was a little sad, like, oh, she, she doesn't need me. We're not really as connected as I thought. Well, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to go have some drinks with umbrellas on a beach because I am Sean Cassidy. Well, Mara and Sean are, and for a long time have kind of been the grown-ups um, as far as their relationship and couple. Like they are, they like each other a lot, but they very much have their own lives. I do like seeing them reunite here, though, because yeah. they do work so well as a couple, just as as a pair of individuals who can be greater than the sum of their parts when they're together. Yeah, I agree. They're they're very adult in that regard. And so it's nice to see Sean back, even though he's not really going to do much of anything until the Phalanx Covenant crossover, other than presumably have a bunch of freaky sex with Moira, which will hopefully make them both feel better about the tragic world in which they live. That's a, a very specific extrapolation you got there, and it's one in direct contrast to our next pair of characters, Rogue and Gambit, who are out on a date. And I love the fact that their date is at this formal black-tie restaurant that we see in the art, and the narration tells us that it's named Papa Gumbo's Cajun Cookout. Like, I just choose to assume that is not an error. There is, in fact, an ultra-fancy, ultra-posh restaurant called Papa Gumbo's Cajun Cookout. That is entirely feasible, actually. Um, Rogue initially feels bad about having fun when everyone's in mourning, but Gambit, who is remarkably emotionally literate in this era, uh, points out that grief isn't going to bring Eliana back. They've been doing everything they can for Colossus, so it's probably okay for them to be people and have fun and 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 do their own thing. And man, I mentioned I, I like Gambit in this era, but also their their flirty mutual ant antagonism here kind of takes on a bittersweet tinge as as Rogue asks Gambit. How come you never want to talk about your wife, Belladonna? Why don't nobody know your real name? Why can't you tell me how you feel about me? Why won't you ever let me show you? They're so great. That's the thing. Like, Gambit, he's often a creep, but whenever he's not being a creep, he's wonderful. And, um, Yanis Yeza for making him, I'm not gonna say not a creep, but, uh, less of a creep. Well, they go from the restaurant to Central Park for a carriage ride where they have a really fantastic conversation about relationships and boundaries and consent, which which leads to sort of a, a return to the subjects they'd been arguing over in the restaurant. Remy, my real name, it's... Hush. Names don't mean nothing to me. Names don't make us what we are inside. And I know what's inside you, Cher. And that's all that matters. Remy's really just in it for the organs. Such a healthy young girl and such plentiful organs. But it is nice because that's the thing. Like, as much as an as much of an ultra-sexualized character as Gambit is, something that's been consistent in his relationship with Rogue is that, you know, yeah, he'd love to make out with her and presumably do all sorts of other things with her, but that's not primarily why he's there. He just genuinely wants to be around her. He wants to connect emotionally with her. Yeah, this is the version of early-ish Gambit and Rogue that I can jump from to Kelly Thompson's stuff with them and make it feel like an organic transition and also one that I applaud. Yeah, man, I gotta say, like, when we were first talking to Kelly when we had her on the show, I was so skeptical about the whole Rogue and Gambit thing. I, like, I liked her miniseries a lot, but then reading that and Mr. and Mrs. X and being in this era of X-Men and focusing on it, like, yeah, I get it. I'm not much of a shipper, but I totally fucking ship Rogue and Gambit, no question. They're great together. 
varyingly great together is the next couple we're, we're looking at, and those are Gene and Scott. So Gene goes to the airport to pick Scott up and almost misses him. Um, he had recently fled to Alaska to get out of an awkward conversation, and apparently the trip was fairly productive since for once he actually wants to talk out their issues using words to have actual conversations and communicate. Well, not just words, because the kiss that we see here, and one where Sienkiewicz's inks are very, very visible as the color sort of fades out as we get closer to their feet, it looks really cool, is pretty amazing. Almost as amazing as the kiss on the cover. This is a very kissy issue, uh, which is one of the iconic Rogue and Gambit kisses. Um, And, you know, X-Men, it's always been a soap opera. We talk about it that way right in, like, the initial little back and forth of every episode. And I love that this issue is like, you know what? Fuck it. I am 100% a soap opera. We're going to have kisses and feelings and restaurants with confusing names and people being about to turn 30 even though they should seem older. Okay, I don't know if soap operas do that. I assume that they do. But I love it. I love these quiet issues. They're so soap opera-ish. This your your description of the the kiss panel reminds me that this is and this is sort of a, a little bit left of, of center of what we're talking about but this is this is an issue that that struck me as having just a lot of a lot of vertically aligned panels and a lot of really 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 vertically focused page layouts yeah i uh i'm not much of a layout person myself so i couldn't say why but i will say it works really well yeah they're there that's 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 neither here nor there it's it's just a thing and yeah, so they're they're finally you know talking through a lot of their stuff, re resolving that they're they're in it together. Less unified, at least by choice, are Psylocke and Quan, and they're continuing to struggle with their remixed identities. They're trying to spar, only to find that they're too evenly matched, and continuing to sort of poke at each other off the battlefield. Until Wolverine drops by like some kind of cowboy vigilante monk to dispense baffling wisdom. Ain't it about time the two of you stop pretending you're anything other than what you are? Two bodies and four minds? Believe me, if anyone knows about trying to squeeze ten liters of brain juice into an eight-liter jug, it's me. Of course, I've been trying to square my problems out since before either of you were born. What are the two of you gonna do about it? Hash it out again and again? Or get on with your lives? Honestly, they're going to do both going forward. But yeah, it's it's a point well taken and one that they take to heart, which leaves Jubilee. Jubilee is still mourning Ilyana, and she's just wearing an oversized t-shirt in the bed that Ilyana was being treated in, huddled with Ilyana's Bamf doll, just curled up in fetal position. She looks just crushed. It's really astonishing and incredibly lucky that Jubilee didn't end up with the legacy virus. The way that the legacy virus is contagious was always very strange, which, I mean, as an AIDS analog, you know, I think especially in the 90s, it just felt almost random how it was or wasn't transmitted some of the time. And so I think that kind of works. Disagree. I mean, I think it was clear from the start that the primary vector of the legacy virus was narrative utility. Well, okay, there is that. Fair enough. (laughs) Sorry. Um, And Kitty drops by and... Jubilee initially sort of tries to blow her off and tries to play it cool around the Banff doll, and Kitty ultimately encourages her to keep it. It's important to hang on to things in life, Jubilee. They become our touchstones, reminders of those we've lost. I really appreciate that even though this issue is focusing on other characters who were not in Uncanny 303, we do get to check in a little bit with Jubilee and Kitty. That is a fascinating dynamic and one that I think really bears following up on. Yeah, it drives home. And then the, this issue underlines the extent to which Jubilee is is in a position that Kitty previously occupied, that she is the kid among the adult X-Men. And it also really made me think about the fact that we so rarely see Kitty in a mentor role, um, because in a lot of ways, she's really well-equipped in position to get what Jubilee and later other characters are experiencing, which I guess at the same time might be as, as much impediment as, as motivation, since a lot of what we've seen from Kitty over years over the years is sort of trying not to get caught in the Xavier School to X-Men feeder loop cycle and coming back anyway. But it's 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 something that that bears consideration and, and sort of also drives home the awkwardness of their relationship, because Kitty Kitty has always been the kid who got along better with the adults, and seeing her try to figure out how to relate to another kid in her previous position is a little bit heartbreaking. 
And that's one of the things I really appreciate about continuing superhero comics is you get to see these characters who have been relegated to a specific role then occupy other roles, other dynamics. You get to see them fleshed out. You get to see them from so many different angles because you have decades to work with it. And I, that's one of the reasons I think that Kitty Pride is one of the more interesting X-Men characters. We've seen her from so many sides. But what Kitty can't do in the way of mentoring, Wolverine can. And once he's you know done talking to Psylocke and Ravash, he, he drops by to dispense some wisdom to Jubilee as well. It ain't the dying you should be afraid of, Jubilation. We all do that. But not living your life to the fullest before your time? That should frighten you, girl. And more than anyone else I know, you don't have to worry about that at all. No one takes a bite out of life like you do, girl. Remember that. So I think it's worth noting that although there is currently a living Ilyana Rasputin magic in the 616, the Ilyana Rasputin who dies here has never come back. That's right, yeah. The version of Ilyana we have right now is sort of a, well, it's very complicated, but she's much closer to the new mutant Ilyana Rasputin than to this one. And still slightly different, that there are, she, she is effectively a different Ilyana. And that's, that's something that for me gives this story a lot more weight, in the same ways that it gives the end of Inferno a lot more weight. Agreed, yeah. I mean, letting a death stick... I'm not going to say that the Dark Phoenix Saga doesn't matter because of the later retcon, but that's sort of maybe the exception that proves the rule. And in this case, I think if this Ilyana came back from the legacy virus, from all of the mourning and sorrow that came from her death, we'd lose a little something. So I mentioned that, you know, this this Ilyana hasn't come back. There's a different one back. And we're going to be looking at, at yet a third version of the character altogether. Now, over the years, and especially over the last decade, we've seen on and off, we've seen magic more and more associated with the, the eldritch end of the Marvel Universe. And specifically with, with an, in, 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 to a degree, an apprenticeship, or at least having Doctor Strange as a mentor. And in 2018, um, a one-shot came out, What If Magic, was part of the 2018 What If series. It was written by Leah Williams, with art built, or line art by Felipe Andrade, and colors by Chris Halloran. And um, it's it's about a continuity in which in which magic was mentored as a teenager by Doctor Strange. Do you want to talk a little bit about what ifs and what those are? Because we've we've discussed them on and off a little bit, and I think most mostly in context of the Dark Phoenix saga and some cold opens, but we haven't really delved into the the whole concept to very much on the show. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so What If is a series that's been running on and off for many decades, and it's a pretty straightforward concept. Essentially, every issue or every storyline is a different, often numbered, alternate Earth. So you can have What If um, Professor Xavier became the Juggernaut, What If Wolverine became Lord of the Vampires, you know, often What If a certain event went really badly, or one of my personal favorites, What If the New Mutants stayed in Asgard after the Asgardian Wars? Yeah, often often it's something branching off from a major storyline or plot point that could have gone in a slightly different direction. And then, yeah, sometimes you have, you know, what if Wolverine were Lord of the Vampires and Captain America were King of the Werewolves and yeah, they kissed or whatever. Um, <laughs> I would read that. I would too. I unfortunately that 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 is not an issue that has been um has 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 been released or as far as I know commissioned to date. But that doesn't mean it can't be. Mm-hmm. Are you there, Marvel? It's us, Jay and Miles. We already know about periods, so like, let's just jump straight to the werewolf vampire makeouts. I think they already did that. I think it was called Underworld. That wasn't that wasn't six one six. I mean, this wouldn't be six one six either. It could be six one six. Cap was definitely a werewolf in six one six. Anyway, anyway, um, this story does not have werewolves in it or vampires, and this is. A really rare what-if story in a lot of ways. It's got a much happier ending than actual continuity, which is something you don't see a lot in what-ifs. More often, the best you can really hope for is a return to something resembling the original status quo, and often what you get is a catastrophe. It's a, you know, had it not been for this one tiny factor, everything would have just gone head over heels. And this is also a really significant narrative detour for Ilyana, who in her first several incarnations tended to be defined, at least in canon, by her mutation and her relationship to the X-Men, and who in almost every incarnation of the character we've seen is defined really heavily by tragedy. This is this is not really 
an angle that Ilyana very often gets, which is part of why I love this issue so much. And in this issue, Ilyana is essentially a homeless runaway going and wreaking vengeance on, you know, various abusers out there. And I really appreciate that we don't know how or why she left her brother and the X-Men after coming back from Limbo after, you know, aging seven years in Limbo. We sort of do. Um, it's established in, in credits page narration that she was afraid that Belasco would come after her and would hurt the people around her, so she left Westchester. And she's been cutting a, a narrow and fairly selective swath of sorcerous destruction ever since, which is how she um, comes into contact with Doctor Strange. He finds her, and despite Ilyana's initial profound and justified mistrust, eventually convinces her to stay with him as an apprentice. And... The parallels to her previous situation with Velasco are really de deliberately developed and lampshaded here. Um, and I, I love Doctor Strange in this. He's a character who is very, very hit or miss for me. And this version of him, who is 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 wry and compassionate but not great at humaning, um, hits hits really, really well. He hits the notes that I tend to go back to for Doctor Strange. For me, this version of Strange is quite reminiscent of the one from the recent Jason Aaron, Chris Pachalo run, which is one of my favorite versions of Doctor Strange, and I highly recommend to anybody who likes either of those creators or the character. Yeah, it's a really fun run. Um, going back here, though, in a lot of ways, Strange is very much the mentor that Ileana actually really needed post-Limbo, because he's not afraid of her, unlike, you know, all of the X-Men characters around her. He takes her seriously as a magic user and also as a person. And he's got the frame of reference to actually help her and critically to understand and grasp the full extent of what Belasco did to her in Limbo and what she's actually struggling with. And this is definitely an illustration of how intentions are great, but they're not everything. Because Magneto tried so, so hard to help Ayana get past her dark side, but he was coming from a completely different place. He doesn't know anything about magic, and he certainly knows about trauma, but his trauma was a very different one. So having Strange here instead, who just gets it on so many levels, works so much better for Liana. Yeah, this is the difference between having a therapist who cares a lot and a therapist with actual expertise in the field you need. Basically that, yeah. Um, and what we end up with in, in this is an Ilyana much more centered in her powers, one with actual supportive mentorship to counterbalance Belasco's, and one who is explicitly well on her way to becoming this universe's next Sorcerer Supreme. But what I like is it's not just, oh, everything is fine, because we still see that creation magic is the hardest thing for Ilyana. I mean, you remember uh, the acorn from the Storm and Ilyana miniseries, from yeah, the magic miniseries. And that's still the case here, and her frustration is still there, even at her mentor, especially at her mentor. You don't get it. I was raised to be the ultimate tool for destruction. Of course I can't create anything. It's because I was built to bring ruin. Oh, kid. But yeah, eventually Ileana is able to create, and in this case, instead of making a soul sword, the way she did in the Magic miniseries, she makes a soul staff, which I guess makes some sense. Her new context is that she's training in a purely arcane fashion with Doctor Strange. And then she impales Belasco with it. She does, but before that, because Belasco shows up, but before that, there's just this wonderful panel of Ileana, who we'd only seen, like, scowling or suspicious or whatever, just with this look of sheer joy as she holds up this simple arcane tool that she's created, and it's just so heartwarming. One of the most important contrasts between this and the previous sort of end to the, the Dark Child saga and a lot of, a lot of the Ileana stories we see is that this story very pointedly is about navigating trauma, not erasing it. Exactly. And I think you have to do that for a good magic story. Because, yeah. I mean, if you just give her a, a happy beginning, middle, and end, that's a cheat. And I think that's, in, in a series and franchise that people identify with as much as they do with X-Men, that's unfortunate. You're removing a paper window people could otherwise have. And so instead, just showing another type of out, another type of development and processing, in that case, we gain something rather than losing it narratively. Now, we are well and firmly established as absolutely loving Leah Williams on this show, you know, as a writer and as a person. I want to talk about the art on this issue too, though, because... It's absolutely gorgeous. Felipe Andrade has got what sort of very Steve Lealoa vibe, I think. Yeah, I could totally see that. And his Nohaloran's visualizations of the magical landscape, which is, is sort of 
the bar by which I judge a lot of Doctor Strange com- comics because you got to get you know into the weird psychedelia of of, of you know the, the, all the magic stuff are gorgeous. It's the sort of Asherian hermetic aesthetic and. Um, O'Halloran's colors are you know, these gorgeous sort of soft textures that really well balance Andrade's fairly stark inks. And it's just, this is, it's, it's a really, really pretty much, it's pretty much a perfect one shot. It is. Yeah. And you don't always see that with what if stories. And I think part of that is because like we were talking about earlier, a lot of what if stories just bounce off other stories. They can't stand alone, but this does. You just need to know the basic premise behind what happened to Ilyana and you're good to go. It's got a beginning, a middle and an end. So that's What If Magic, uh, significantly more current than anything else we've covered in a while. Uh, pick it up. It's probably still in most comic stores. It didn't come out that long ago. And with that, you've got questions. The Blue Leopard asks us on Twitter, I'm trying to do a timeline of the various X titles, and I'm stuck on Uncanny versus Adjectiveless. Is the title that ran as The X-Men from 1963 to 1978 considered X-Men Volume 1 or part of Uncanny Volume 1? So I've actually thought a fair bit about this in pondering our theoretical eventual page on our site that'll say which podcast episodes <laughs> cover which issues. We're totally going to make well, it. Well, that's, that's, no, well, that's, that's in the wiki. Uh, true, but I have like, you know, which, color coding in mind. Oh, well then. Um, I will link to the wiki and the visual companion here, by the way. I, th- I know it's been a while since we've mentioned it. That's also where you can find the episode transcripts that are up, um, if that is something that you look for. Uh, but anyway... In answer to your question, it depends on who you ask. I would say either way would be appropriate. Now, on the one hand, the word uncanny wasn't added to the title until number 142 of the series. The first 141 issues were just X-Men, or The X-Men. So, essentially, X-Men Volume 1 went from number 1 to number 141, and Uncanny X-Men Volume 1 started at 142 and went to 544. And then it also skipped to number 600 when it briefly went back to original numbering at the end of Uncanny Volume 3. Or maybe it's even still going if you're looking at legacy numbering. Fucking Marvel. Yeah, um, something you should know, and that we maybe should have qualified going into answering this, is this. It, it, it's going to be a, a matter of choosing your favorite of a number of deeply awkward options. Exactly, yeah. Uh, For what it's worth, the Marvel database, one of our frequent sources, does it the way I just described. On the other hand, that is, of course, really confusing. So personally, I'm fine with having number 1 through 544, or even number 1 through 600, just being referred to as Uncanny X-Men Volume 1 for sanity's sake. You could always have, like, an asterisk with a footnote, like they do whenever they say that Midgard is Earth in Thor, or maybe even have in parentheses, like, Uncanny X-Men number... 140 is actually X-Men number 140 or whatever. I don't know. As long as you're clear, though, I think you're good. So here is what I would do. Um, I would, I've thought a lot about this because I'm coming into this from academia and I've, I've done. And, and so, so the question of how to cite this stuff um, comes up for me. And the main point of citations and of bibliographies is to make the book as clearly findable as possible for someone who wants to track down the original source, which I think is, is a valuable goal to go back to when you're putting together a timeline like the one you're talking about. So to that end, I would go with the system Miles suggests and basically use, just use Uncanny X-Men as the title within writing, but have a collective footnote um, to the effect of originally published as X-Men for the issues to which that's relevant. The Space Ace asks via email, a long while ago, someone asked about your favorite multiverses and you mentioned a world on fire. Any more information on that? I'm highly intrigued. All right, so what you're talking about here is Earth 242. This is Earth on Fire, and it is exactly what it sounds like. It is entirely on fire. You're never going to see this world on panel, or at least haven't so far. It's mentioned once in, in Ultimate Comics Armor Wars number four, although Tony Stark does carry around his own severed head from that universe for a while. He's having a very rough time. Uh, don't judge him. He's drinking a lot at that point. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and contributions at certain levels come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. We're going to take a very rare break from the standard. We usually don't take special requests for this. And because you demanded it, hear from Sexy Cyclops? Wow. Um, gosh. Alex Lundquist and, and Roxanne Rasco. That's, um... I was definitely not expecting either of you to, um, and let alone both, and now you are, and this is, um, oh, wow, that's very, uh, 
flattering. You, you know, you know what though? I, I think I definitely forgot something in Alaska or possibly on the moon, but either way, I have to go immediately. And with that... Jay and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we've got three annuals on the docket. Each with its own new character. But not that one. Yet. Soon. Very soon. And they all lived happily ever after, except that none of them did because it was the age of apocalypse. And also Brian Braddock was a traitor, but that's not relevant to this cold open.